you may remember about a year ago, I was doing a series called Epic Fail. And in that series, the idea was looking at some of the worst failures of the Bible, some of the worst uh, collapses of different personalities in the Bible. We talked about the Pharaoh. We talked about uh, Judas Iscariot, people like that, Jezebel. Um, And we talked about these people for whom there wasn't a fresh start, for whom there wasn't uh, a turnaround at the end of the story, but just colossal failures and how we can learn from those failures. Um, This series is, is, is the opposite side of the coin, I guess you would say. Because in that epic fail series, the idea was for us to talk about people who had it all. They had, they were born into families of privilege. Uh, They had wealth. They had abilities. They had incredible opportunities to do anything they could have imagined imagined with their lives, and they squandered it. That That was the idea of epic fail a year ago. This series, The Other Side of the Coin, in the Underdog series, what we've been talking about the past few weeks, are are those people who were born with nothing. They were not born into privilege. They weren't born on the right side of the tracks. They did not have um, the same opportunities and the same set of talents and, and networks that those other folks had. But in the Underdog series, we're seeing how God prefers to work, how He prefers to use um, common people, folks like us, to do extraordinary things because he gets the glory, right? When we start out with nothing, when when the odds are stacked against us, then God gets the glory when he comes through. A ministry student one time was at at a big conference, was listening to these speakers and and taking notes and everything, and and one of the speakers got up to address the crowd, and it it, it was this veteran preacher, famous preacher, and he started out, uh, with, with, with this line. He said, the happiest time in my life were the years I spent in the arms of another man's wife. <gasps> so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. He paused, then he said, my father's wife, All right? Happiest years of my life were those I spent in the arms of another man's wife. Pause, my father's wife. Okay, and, and the audience loved it. They thought that was the greatest thing. So he took, that, he took down notes and he thought, okay, next time I get an opportunity to preach, that is the story I'm going to use. And a few weeks later, he had an opportunity there in a local church to preach. So he got up to preach and, and he started out and he said, the happiest years in my life were those I spent in the arms of another man's wife. Pause. Can't remember the punchline. <laughs> The happiest years of my life were the years I spent in the arms of another man's wife. Pause. I just can't remember whose. Yeah. There are some things we can't afford to forget, all right? And I think the story of Rahab in the Old Testament is one of those stories that brings us back to some of the most important foundational truths of the faith and reminds us of the things that we would do well not to forget. Her narrative begins as Israel is on the tail end of 40 years of wandering in the wastelands between Egypt and Israel. 
They now look across the Jordan off in the distance. They see the city of Jericho, a a large, impressive city and well fortified with a city wall, as you remember. It is an exciting time. It is a time of great anticipation as they know that they, the Israelites, the 12 tribes, are on the cusp of achieving what has been promised for so long, what their fathers and grandfathers, what their mothers and great-grandmothers, and what those, those, their ancestors would have loved to have had. It was finally time to take possession of the land that God was promising them, and Jericho, this city off in the distance, would be the first domino to fall. With the conquest of Jericho, God would open up the promised land so that the tribes could take possession of it. And so as they look off in the distance on the other side of the Jordan River, Joshua, their, their leader, gives them this God-breathed vision when he says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, he says, and he gets specific with them, three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here, and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. And so the tribes knew in three days, we are going to cross this river. Don't know exactly how, but we are going to cross this river and we are going to take the city of Jericho and begin the conquest of that which God has laid out before us. But... We don't know exactly how it's going to happen, right? Joshua gives them some specificity three days, but he doesn't tell them exactly how. Will we surround the city and choke it out? Months and months, perhaps years, to choke the city out in a a prolonged siege where finally they simply all starve to death or they surrender to us? Or will we attack some weak spot in the wall that the Lord will show us. Here, attack right here. It's a weak spot. So we're going to go all in on that one. We're going to take that part of the wall down, and we're going to move in and take the city. Or perhaps the king of Jericho will simply see our forces. Certainly has heard some of the stories of what God has been doing through us. He will see us and our, our, our army, if you will. Uh, that's using the term loosely, I think. Our army of ex-slaves. Um, he will see us and he will be so intimidated by us that he will simply hoist the white flag and surrender to us. They didn't know exactly how, right? But they knew that God was going to, to bring them the victory in, in starting in three days. Their leader, Joshua, sent a couple of spies into the land. Um, this time, the spy thing went a little, better, a little bit better than it had 40 years before, all right? Um, but this time, he again sends a couple of spies uh, into the land, and, and they're going to gather intelligence. There were only two good spies the first time around, so we're just going to send the two good ones in the second time around. Joshua 2, verse 1, he tells them, I want you to go and look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and stayed in the house of a prostitute named Rahab, all right? Now, to be fair, we don't know for certain why they choose, chose rather to go and spend time in the brothel in Jericho. Um, we don't know what they did at, at Rahab's place. We don't know what they didn't do at Rahab's place, but we know that they stayed there 
while they were assessing the defensive capabilities of the city of Jericho. Most likely, a house of prostitution was the place in town you had the best chance of staying and remaining off the grid. It was a place that would have been known for its use uh, or, or specializing rather in discretion. So perhaps that is the reason they decided to stay at Rahab's house. Before continuing with her story, though, in, in Joshua, let's, let's do a little fast forward, and we're going to do a recap on her life before we get into the specifics of this story. Rahab ends up being, um, she begins, walks onto the scene as a prostitute. She ends up being this amazing woman of faith who we are called to imitate. She ends up being a part of, of the very lineage of Jesus, um, one of his ancestors, and she, in the New Testament, is, is lauded for her faith. Um, the Holy Spirit honors her not only by placing her in the very first chapter of, of the New Testament, but also by calling us to look at her as an example of what genuine faith looks like. In the New Testament, the chapter of faith, the roll call of faith, the Mount Rushmore of faith, if you will, is Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer takes us through the greatest men and women who were God followers in all of the history of God's people. And if you start in chapter 11, about verse 7, you're going to start with, in, in verse 7, you're going to have Noah. I want, just listen to these names and think about, think about the weight of these names. You've got Noah, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got Joseph, you've got Moses, and then you have Rahab. So she is a headliner, right, in the, in the roll call of faith in the book of Hebrews. Um, guys like David and, and, and guys like Samuel get footnoted in there. Their stories aren't told. They're just kind of footnoted with a bunch of names after Rahab's name. But she appears on the Mount Rushmore of faith, and her story is mentioned Chapter 11, verses 30 to 31, this is from the message. It says, By faith, the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho for seven days. The walls fell flat. By an act of faith, Rahab the Jericho harlot welcomed the spies and escaped destruction that came on those who refused to trust God. So that's the book of Hebrews. Then you go to the next book, the book of James. James, likely written by James, the brother of Jesus. He is going to talk a lot about faith, and you know the story. He's going to talk about a lot about how faith requires works, how faith reduced somehow to just an intellectual concept, to, to just believing how that is dead. He chooses from the entire Old Testament scriptures, James is going to choose exactly two people who illustrate what faith looks like. One of them in James is, is, is James chapter 2, one of them is Abraham, the other is Rahab. So again, she is a fairly, or, or that's an under, a very important person in terms of understanding what faith looks like. In James chapter 2, verses 25 to 26, again from the message, the same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot, wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape, I love this phrase, that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you end up with the same thing, a corpse. So Rahab, 
The prostitute in Joshua chapter 2 becomes a part of the family tree of Jesus. She becomes a hero of faith, and she becomes a model for you and I of what real living faith looks like that marries action and belief or trust, all right? But as she makes her sultry stroll onto the scene of the Bible, um, she comes in as an underdog. She comes in as a very surprising person in terms of the kinds of people you would expect God to use, right? I mean, she is an underdog. She is not a Jew, She is not one of the Israelites who is going to walk up and encircle the city of Jericho. She is one of the people inside the city of Jericho who will face destruction when she comes onto the scene. She's on the wrong side of this war. She doesn't walk onto the scene as a prophetess. She doesn't come onto the scene as a a model, certainly, of chastity. She comes onto the scene as a whore, right? And to complete the picture, I think this is just a, it deserves a footnote. She was a successful businesswoman as well. We know that from the story. She was a successful businesswoman as well. After all, she runs this inn where men can spend the night. Um, her establishment is, is actually um, built into the city wall, which would have been a fairly prominent uh, location, a fairly notable address. We know that she has mother, father, uh, a large family that lives in Jericho, but she has her own place. She's not living with them. She's made enough money. She's done well enough on her own to live on her own. She is successful enough to even be known by the powers that be in Jericho. You might not be surprised by that, I guess, knowing how politicians and their reputations work. But she was known by the politicians around Jericho. Anyway, when the spies entered Jericho, they went to her house. They went to her house. Jericho's king discovered that there were actually spies in his city, checking out his city, doing intel. Um, he sent a message to Rahab telling her, I know that they are at your house I insist, I demand that you turn them over to the local authorities in Jericho. And this is the point. This is the crux. This is where the pendulum swings here. Rahab chooses God. Rahab chooses this foreign God that she has heard some stories about. She picks a side. And although she had been a resident of Jericho for as long as she can remember, although all of her business contacts, all of her friends, all of her network of relationships center around Jericho, she chose God because she believed that God of Israel would overrun her city and she went all in to demonstrate this faith. I mean, she risked everything to demonstrate this faith. She even risked the lives of her other uh, family members by siding with with Israel. So instead of turning the spies in, you may recall some of the details of the story. Instead of turning the spies in and saying, yes, king, here they are. She hides them on her roof under stalks of flax. Basically, her roofing material, they're hiding underneath this pile of flax stalks. And she gives the 
king some misinformation. No, they're not here. They left a few days ago. And she points the king and his search party in the wrong direction. Obviously, if she's caught, things are not going to turn out well for her. She risks everything in order to protect these men that she believes are sent by God. That evening, after she protects their hide, she declares her faith in a beautiful way. Joshua chapter 2 verse 9, she tells them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know that the Lord has given you this land. She says in chapter 2 verse 11, the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Your God is the God of everything, right? So Rahab goes from being a prostitute to being a negotiator. Based on her faith, she makes a deal with the spies. I have protected you. I will continue to protect you. Now I am asking that you save me and whatever family members I can collect at my house when the fall of Jericho occurs. They say, yes, absolutely, we will do that. The only thing we ask is that to to set your house apart, you hang a, a scarlet cord out of your window. Remember, her house is on the wall, so this scarlet cord is hanging out the wall. So the Israelites know that's Rahab's house, and they're not going to kill the folks that are in there when they overtake the city. Then she becomes essentially an evangelist, okay? She has to go to her father, go to her mother, go to her, her family, and, and, and beg them, plead with them, persuade them to come under the protection of her roof. What's interesting to me, just one of the details that are, many details are so powerful in this story, is you might remember just decades before, the Israelites, when it came time for the plagues to end, and the most devastating hammer blow of a plague was dealt against them, and God was going to kill the firstborn of all in the land, they were told, remember, to mark the door frames of their homes with the blood of the Passover lamb. You remember this. So they're marking with this red blood the, pa the, the, the door frames of their homes with, with the lamb, and then she is asked to mark her home with the scarlet cord, and then we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, our lives have been marked with the scarlet blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and that has ensured our salvation, our protection, our deliverance. So Rahab the prostitute puts her faith in God, she risked, and she risked everything when she made this choice. She put her faith into action by serving God. She served God by protecting the spies and by getting them safely outside of the city of Jericho. And then Rahab waited. It wasn't long, but days passed. She waited. She had to be thinking, I sure hope the Israelites show up soon because I've gone all in. Word of this may get out. So she's waiting. And then she sees the signs that they must be getting close because the gate of the city is shut and it's not opening anymore. They are in lockdown. No one is leaving the city. No one is entering the city. The, there are more sentries posted on the wall of the city. And then finally one morning she is awoken probably by um, the trumpet blast of one of the sentries of, of Jericho alerting the city to the fact that the enemy has arrived. 
Well, and she sees the Israelites outside. And you know, this is not going to be a prolonged siege. It's only going to take, uh, it's about a week, week-long siege. In fact, six days, the Israelites simply march once a day around the city. You probably remember this story on the seventh day. They march around the city seven times. And after the seventh time, the priests who are in front of the procession, they will blast their shofars, their ram's horn trumpets. The, the army of Israel will shout a loud shout, and then it was like an earthquake. And the walls of the city simply fell to the ground. They were breached by this, by this event, um, which some may have thought was a geological event, but we know was a God event. Um, the same men who had earlier been saved by Rahab as, as the destruction of the city is commencing, those who were saved by Rahab are now sent in on the rescue mission to collect her and her family. Her choice, her stepping into the God of Israel and leaving behind all that she had known opens a new chapter in her life. And this prostitute with a past decided that her past would not determine her future. And I think, guys, this is what we're going to spend a little bit of time on here in a few minutes. I think this is the crux of the story for us. She determined that her past would not determine her future. She marries this man named Solomon, which many scholars believe was probably one of those two spies that had rescued her and that she had rescued. She gave birth to a guy named Boaz, who is more famous because of his wife, who was Ruth, so Ruth is, is her daughter-in-law, and Ruth also becomes this legendary figure of faithfulness in the Scriptures. Now here's the thing. Rahab is an example of a life that can turn on a dime, as any of ours can, for better or worse. And she reminds us that the failures of your past do not have to determine your future. The failures of your past do not. I don't care if you're 15. I don't care if you're 65 or 101. The failures of your past do not have to determine your future. And maybe that's why, if you've ever wondered, maybe that's why when the New Testament speaks of Rahab and her faith, it inevitably says, Rahab the prostitute. Right? The Holy Spirit wants to be sure that you don't forget the transformation that happened. How remarkable it was. How complete it was. All right. So, how does someone make this turn? How does someone go from being a reprobate, from being a moral degenerate, or specifically in this case, from being a woman who trades sex for money, how does somebody go from that into being a legend on the, the Mount Rushmore of faith? Now, the easy answer is God, right? That's the answer you learn in preschool when you're at church. The best answer is always God or Jesus. Well, you could say that here. How does it happen? Well, it's God, but it's more than that. Obviously, she does something to connect her story with God's story. She is a foreigner. She is an outsider. But what she does is she chooses to trust in God and chooses to trust that his story is greater than her story. And she decides that me, Rahab, I'm not any longer going to be the CEO of my life. 
but I'm going to surrender and allow God to be president and CEO of my life. She left her story. She joined his story. Now, you have done things in your life that you are ashamed of. Okay? You have. I have too. Uh, you have done things that you would die if we watched those things on a video this morning here. That you, you, you would die. You would just slide down onto the board. You've done things that you are ashamed of. Some of us have had things done to us that were horrible things. Some of us have suffered great injustices in life at the hands of other people, sometimes our own family members or trusted friends of the family. Um, but your past does not have to determine your future. And that is the message of God in this story for you. And the past doesn't determine her future because she chooses to go all in with God. An incredible risk to herself. She makes a decision that her story is over. And that it must be moved into the greater story of God. Rahab the harlot becomes Rahab the hero. Rahab the prostitute becomes Rahab the protagonist in the story. So leaving the past behind. Leaving the past behind. I don't think there's anything harder to do. It's my opinion. I don't think there's anything harder to do than leaving the past behind. Our nature is to maintain the flight plan that we have been on, maybe make some minor adjustments to it, but essentially maintain the flight plan that we have been on or that has been forced upon us by others. And some people find it impossible, impossible to believe that another flight plan is possible, that another trajectory is possible for their life, that they could, in fact, wear a different story and be another sort of person. This, however, is the essence of every underdog story. It really is. Of every, whether, whether it's in business or whether it's in sports or whether it's in whatever, it is the essence of every underdog story. Because the essence of the underdog story is that this woman or this man, by all rights, should not come out of the situation on top. This individual should not, based on their past history, based on their story up to this point, they should not win the game. They should not get the girl. They should not come away victorious. But underdogs believe and achieve because their past does not determine their future. That's the underdog story in a nutshell. And Rahab goes from being a prostitute to being a legend of faith. She abandons the script of moral impurity to join God's story for her life. She becomes a mom. She becomes a grandma. She becomes a, a wife. She becomes this amazing, amazing example of Christian dignity or of godly dignity. And I think of 
a lot of stories um, from, from the work in Rio. I think of a lot of stories. I think of a guy here at Preston Crest, one of our brothers in Christ, who year, a few years back was selling drugs. That was the family business. That's what you did in his family. I went to jail, went to prison because of that. Met Jesus. Story turned. Story turned. Now he preaches the gospel at dart stations. Member of this church. A lot of stories like that here. There are so many B.C. and A.D. stories at this church. The disciple of Jesus chooses not to wear their old story anymore, but to wear the story of God. Think about the Apostle Paul, all right? Um, before he experienced Jesus, he was a religious terrorist. I mean, I, no other way to really put that. He was a religious terrorist. He went around arresting and killing innocent men and women and destroying homes. That's what he did. It's what he was known for. Then Jesus got a hold of his life. The transformation, in order for it to happen, requires that you believe. You have to believe that the power of the gospel is bigger than the sin trajectory that your life has been on. And it means that you have to trust him, to fully trust him, and to allow him to bury your past. And you move forward in his story. How on earth did Paul make the switch? Well, it wasn't on earth that he made the switch. It was a supernatural Holy Spirit powered switch. Um, it was powered by God, but, but he did have to make a choice. And it's very clear from what Jesus wrote, or from what Paul wrote rather, to the Philippians and what he recorded for us, that a big part of this turn, of this transformation, was his decision not to live in the past. I love what he says in Philippians chapter 3, um, cha uh, verses 13 to 14. Philippians 3, verses 13 to 14. Do we have that? We do have that. Let's put that up. I want you to read this out loud with me, if you would, because this is just, this is the kind of thing that we just need to burn on the hard drive of our souls. This is God's story for us. But look at what Paul does in order to experience transformation. Read this with me. But I folk, uh, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach, but I focus on this one thing. Um, the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Go back to that first slide. This phrase, forgetting the past. Ah. That you could forget the past. So many of you. So many of you who believe you can't experience another flight plan. You can't break free from what's been done to you or what you have done to yourself. Paul says, religious terrorist, murderer, says, I had to resolve in Jesus Christ to forget the past. And to make the switch, you have to choose to believe that God can and will, by his power, bury your past under the weight of his grace. Changing your world requires a decision point. 
where you essentially say, you know what? I'm not going to live by the old rules anymore. It's not going to be like that anymore. I believe that God has something different for me. It involves that declaration. You guys watch Downton Abbey? How many of you guys watch Downton Abbey? Very popular. Tonight is the final episode of the season. So we're all waiting to see. CNN had this article on five questions for Downton Abbey. What's going to happen? How are they going to wrap these stories up? One of the stories in this series that has been so popular from British television, that's, I think it's on uh, PBS tonight at uh, 7 or 8. I don't know. We DVR it, so we never watch it right then. But one of, the, one of the things that has impacted me in the story, there's so many interesting characters. If you watch the story, then you know who a young girl named Ethel Parks is. Ethel Parks comes to this British estate and begins to work as a servant, right? Ethel Parks makes a big mistake for a night of passion. She sleeps with this guy. He is completely worthless, this guy, right? but he's good looking, right? She sleeps with this guy. She gets pregnant. He's gone. And now she is left pregnant with this child out of wedlock, which at that time in that place, mm -mm. so she's let go. And then if you watch the story, you remember she does the only thing she can think to do. And that is to begin selling her body to men. And so she goes into this lifestyle. Eventually, she loses her child. She's not able to raise her child on her own. But in the middle of this story, as she's living this extraordinarily depraved and destructive lifestyle, this older widow woman named Mrs. Isabel Crawley comes in, and she offers Ethel a new story. This is what I find interesting in Downton Abbey. If you watch the show, Isabel offers her this new chance. This, this new job, this, this new future. But Ethel, for the longest time, refuses, flees, will have nothing to do with it. She doesn't think it's possible for her. But then finally, after months and months of wooing and convincing, she does allow Isabel Crowley to employ her, and her life takes on a very different sort of trajectory one that is not marked by shame any longer. And if you feel stuck, if you feel trapped in your past, God is working on you today. And honestly, he has been working on you for a long time to convince you that new life is possible. Right? That you can be what 2 Corinthians 5.17 calls a new creation. You can have a new life in Christ. That in Christ, this script, this gospel story is out there for you. And in this story, this new story, the God of the universe loves you so recklessly, so completely that he gave his only son to die for you. And he wants with all of his heart to adopt you into his family and to give you a new story, a new name, a new future. And in this story, well, I like the way, 
I've got a quote here from a book, um, Telling the Truth by Frederick Beekner. I love the way he describes it. He says about this gospel and about the world at large, he says, it is a world of magic and mystery, of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It is a world where terrible things happen and wonderful things too. It is a world where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos in a great struggle where often it is hard to be sure who belongs to which side because appearances are endlessly deceptive. And yet for all its confusion and wildness, it is a world where the battle goes ultimately to the good who live happily ever after. And where in the long run, everybody good and evil alike becomes known by his true name. That is the fairy tale of the gospel with, of course, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales which is that the claim made for it is that it is true. That it not only happened once upon a time, but has kept on happening ever since, and is happening still. The gospel, the true fairy tale that God invites you to join. Now, let's be clear about something. There is something about this story that sends people running. Let's be honest about it. There's something about this story that some people, frankly, hear it and say, no thanks. And it's this. Rahab, for example, may be an amazing person of courage, but in God's story, she was not the main character. Okay? Paul was an amazing missionary, wrote a good portion of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he wasn't the featured performer in the story. And if you choose God's story, you know that the plot will never revolve around you. And for that reason, so many find the story to be unacceptable for them. Honestly, they do. But Paul understood it. He proclaims in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Rahab understood it when she said in Joshua 2.11 that God is in heaven above and on earth below. It's God who reigns. It's God who prevails. Or John the Baptist in John chapter 3 verse 30 said, he, Jesus, must become Greater I must become less. The new story is the Lord's story. And honestly, in a narcissistic, self-centered society, where people basically think, look, the people I meet, the people I work with, the people I hang out with, the people I interact with on social media are essentially actors in my story. Essentially playing bit parts in the story of me. In a society that thinks that way, 
the gospel says something very different. And Rahab reminds us that what matters most is making the courageous choice to surrender to God's story. Jericho may not have surrendered to Israel, but there was a surrender in Jericho. And it was Rahab raising the white flag of her heart to surrender to God and to his story. The gospel tells me, in no uncertain terms, Gordon, you need to die. (laughs) You need to die. And you need to be reborn in Christ. That's what the gospel tells me. It's not about squeezing a little Jesus into the cracks of my life where I've got some holes and I need some filling. (laughs) It's about surrendering myself to his story. So in Christ, you, 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 you make the choice to follow Jesus, not yourself. Passion for God, compassion for others. Those become the plot lines of your new life in Christ. Baptism becomes this symbol, this moment of, of change where the old ends and the new begins in Jesus Christ. It becomes a burial of yourself into the gospel story. The death, resurrection, death burial, resurrection of Jesus. And Paul makes this point continuously as he writes to these Christians in the New Testament about how their story has now been overwhelmed in Jesus' story and that the moment they can remember this happening is that moment where they were buried in his name. He tells the church in Rome, Romans 6 verse 4, for we, we died. Gordon died. You follower of Christ, you have died. We died. And we were buried with Christ by baptism. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Are you ready to take that step and experience new life in Jesus? Leave the script of your past behind and enter into God's story. Are you willing to surrender your story to His where He is Lord, where He is God over your life and you exist for His glory? Are you ready to cross that line of faith, be immersed in baptism, uniting your story to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you ready?